Psalm 33. You don't have to do this, but if you want, you can follow along with me. Let's take a deep breath in. Deep breath out. If you just did that practice with me or just watched, either way, that means you're alive. That's how we measure life in part. Is any breath in your lungs? 22,000 times a day, we breathe in and out. The breath of God is one of the key ideas of Psalm 33. I think it is a fascinating idea to start in the beginning of the Bible and study this word, ruach, which means breath or wind or spirit. When you see the breath of God in Psalm 33, as I'm about to read the psalm, I want you to know it's that same word. In Hebrew, ruach, it means breath, or, or maybe wind in some instances, or spirit. And the first time you find it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The ruach of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God is hovering. Like a mother hovers over some eggs that she's waiting to become hatched and children, hovering. God was hovering with his breath, with his spirit, over creation. And from the power of his breath, he made the world come into existence. There was nothing, but God's breath made something. And I believe our psalm is very clearly referring to this. God's breath, in Genesis 1 verse 2, is not God per se. Like, there's a distinction between, in the beginning, God created, and then the spirit of God, the breath of God. And we now know through reading the whole Bible that those two distinct entities are, in fact, equal deities in the triune relation of Father, Son, and Spirit, or breath, or Ruach of God. In a similar manner, we'll find that the Word of God, what we've been singing about and celebrating, that God's Word is distinct from God, but that is equal with, in terms of its authority and truth, and revealing the very character of God the Father. So just think about your own use of words and language and breath. You breathed out. I don't know how your breath smells or whatever. You know, that's not the point. You breathed out. You're alive. But the Bible tells us that you have breath because God sustains you with that breath. That Adam breathed his first breath because of God's breath and animating life in him. Furthermore, your words... Your words are not you, just like your breath is not you. You can't catch your words. You sometimes want to, don't you? You say something and you're like, wait, I want that back. Oh, it's out. Just like your breath, it's, it's in you, but it comes out of you. In fact, Jesus teaches that your words that you say out of your mouth reflect the inner realities of one's soul and being and heart. I want you to meditate deeply this week on these concepts of breath, of word, how these realities in you and me are a reflection of God himself, 
For in fact, that is the subject matter that we are going to be examining in Psalm 33. Not our breath or our words. Inasmuch as we do reflect these realities, but God's. How they reveal his person, his character. How they reveal his power and ultimately his plans. So I want you to follow along in Psalm 33 as I read. And realize before I read, the basic structure of this psalm begins with three verses about joy. Then verses 4 to 19 are about the word of God, the power of God's sovereign word, his person, his power, and his plan. And then they will conclude with joy. Joy, person, power, plan regarding God's word, joy. That's the structure of this psalm. So follow along. I'm going to read it. And hopefully you'll see very clearly. This is actually one of those psalms that when you hear the little outline structure, you're like, yeah, I didn't need that. It was kind of straightforward, Pastor Phil. So let's, let's just read it now. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the seas as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who put hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, and he is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The grass withers, the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord 
endures forever. Amen? Well, the word generally of the Lord will endure forever and ever, but this word itself, I pray that God will write its truth on our hearts and it will endure, not just for these few moments, but for your week, for your life. And the big idea, I believe, of this psalm in a sentence is that the sovereign power of God's word creates supreme and sustaining joy. The sovereign power of God's word, or interchangeably in our psalm, his breath. God's breath, God's word is sovereignly powerful over everything. And therefore, in the life of a believer or a worshiper, it creates, just like it created the world in Genesis chapter 1, just like he spoke and commanded and it came to be, so God can create joy in your heart and your dead heart, dead metaphorically speaking, and then dead literally speaking as he resurrects us from the dead, the way our psalm ends. You would be delivered from death. So God's sovereign word powerfully creates supreme and sustaining joy. Did you notice the way that it began with an outburst of joy? Shout! And ends with long-felt, long-enduring, steadfast hope waiting with gladness. So bursts of joy and sustaining joy. That's the bookends of our psalm, and the meat in the middle is the character of God's personhood, the power of of his breath and the plans that cannot be thwarted. And in fact, he thwarts the plans of everyone else who thinks that they're in charge. Did you see that in our psalm? Is that a good summary of the psalm? I leave that for you to think through, but I'm trying my best to just simply summarize the main idea and the main structure of this psalm. So in terms of application to drive home this message from Psalm 33 so that my words now are not the words of Phil and his heart. I mean, some of you might be interested in that, but honestly, I don't think you should be. The words of God being communicated through me as I read them, as I preach them, as I press them into you. Wouldn't that be more worthwhile to listen to? So I ask these three questions to apply God's word into your heart. First, why do we, Embassy Church, gather for worship? Second, Embassy Church, how should we worship? Third, who should we worship? Many of you are downstairs, and therefore you're already well aware that Tuesday will mark the eighth anniversary of the establishment of Embassy Church. It seems fitting as we just work our way through Psalm 33. This sermon is in a series of teaching. We just find ourselves in Psalm 33. But it seems fitting to apply this to the church embassy for eight plus more years, hopefully eight decades, until Jesus returns, that there would be a church that worships God, centering themselves around his word, and that we would do so for the right reason, in the right manner, and to the right person. Sound good? Let's dive in first. Embassy Church, why do we gather for worship? Individual attenders of this actual gathering, why are you here today? That's the question I'm asking. Why did you come 
on your Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday of all Sundays, when you could be shopping and prepping for a big party today? Why are you here listening to this teaching and reading and singing? Well, I would suggest that the reason that we are here is because of God. The reason we exist is because of God's sustaining power of his word. And the reason that we have specifically come at this time in this place right now is to sit at God's feet through his word and hear his voice speak to us so that we can know his heart and so we can know his character and his power and his plans. And so I would suggest that you can receive God's word and the result is actually really good. It results in spontaneous bursts of joy and it also results in sustained hope-filled joy. That would be the reason for why you'd want to come in the first place for God, to sit under his word, to know him, and may the result be joy. Not flippant happiness, not like your circumstances come and you hear the Bible taught and then all of a sudden everything got all better. Yay! That's not what I'm talking about. You could be like my family has been for the last three months going through what feels like hell on earth. When you bury people into the ground, when you hear news from family members of just devastating pain and suffering and your heart weeps again this last week. That was my week. So sustained hope. I'm not talking about flippant happiness, happy clappy worship. No, I mean sustained joy rooted in the character of God, in the plans of God, the goodness of God. The placement of this psalm is very Interesting, and I've told you in the past that one way to read the Psalms is to know what comes before it and what comes after it. So this particular point, the why we worship, I think it's clear from the broader comments I just made, but let me point out a couple things about our Psalm that you maybe didn't notice. First, every single Psalm that we've studied so far, except for three, the first two, Psalms 1 and 2, and Psalm 11, began with the number of the psalm, like Psalm 33. And then what comes right after that? Look back at Psalm 32. What comes before there's any verses? Do you see all capitals? Do you see a psalm of David and then some sort of musical or historical note? Now look back at Psalm 33. What do you notice? There is no what's called superscription. There's no little fine print telling you why this psalm was written, who it was written by or for. Psalm 33, in this case, is unique and interesting in that manner. So what's the point? When you study this psalm, and then you study Psalm 32, like we did last week, what was Psalm 32 all about? Confess your sins to God, and he will forgive you of your sins. And when you do so, you will be joyfully celebrating God's forgiveness. Look at the way Psalm 32 ended. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Then just keep reading. Look at Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright 
Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Just that one observation. Are you starting to notice that perhaps there's good warrant to see that Psalm 32 was an encouragement and a model for confessing your sin before God to receive forgiveness and that the result of that is joyful praise as is illustrated in Psalm 33. I'm arguing that I think that's the case, and therefore, Psalm 33 is telling us not just generally that you should praise the power and the person and the plans of God, but specifically after you confess sin and are heard these amazing words. You are forgiven. God Almighty speaks through his word, to his people, and when you confess his sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Psalm 32 says this very clearly. Look at verse 5 in Psalm 32. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. You confess, you get forgiveness. What is forgiveness except for God speaking into your situation on the basis of what you just brought before him, as we saw last week? Acknowledging to God, here's my failures, here's my transgressions, here's all of the many ways that I have sinned against you, God, and I'm being honest about them. No ifs, ands, or buts. No excuses, no blame shifting, just here it is. And God in that vulnerable moment does not scoff. He doesn't get angry The Bible says that a humble, penitent, broken heart saying, God, I've sinned, he forgives. He says, I will forgive you for all of those sins. As far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins and count them against you no more. So brothers and sisters, I suggest that the reason why you've come to worship, if it's not for this, then I want you to make it the new reason you come for worship. So that you can hear God declare to you, you are forgiven. And week after week, let those words from God's word change you. May they put joy in your heart in the same way that he makes a world exist. Your heart could be so hard, so cold, so dead spiritually inside. And as cold and as dead as the non-existent world is, God's breath can come breathe. His warm, melting the ice and hardness of your heart. Words of, I have forgiven you. The sovereign power of God's word of forgiveness is far greater than any fear that you and I might have of your being exposed in your nakedness. Perfect love casts out fear. Realize that God seeks to cast out the fear that would make you hide and keep those words of confession deep down in that are wasting your body and soul away. God would like to cast that fear out by drawing you to himself through his loving kindness. And that's what draws us to him and keeps us hoping in him. So the why is the word, but I want to be more specific on the basis of Psalm 32 and 33 and the lack of heading and the lack of all of the things and then the the key words that are used at the beginning and the end and there's more but 
there's, I think, a firm basis to say Psalm 32, Psalm 33 are pairs together. You're supposed to read the one, and you're supposed to be encouraged to see, brothers and sisters, why should you take last week's sermon and remind yourself of the goodness of confession of sin? Because our God loves people who are humble and repentant, and he gives them forgiveness. So come to worship, confess your sin, and receive forgiveness. Second question, how? How should we worship? If the reason we've come is to hear God's word and to specifically hear him declare to us forgiveness of sins, secondly, how should that inform our worship? In fact, look at the way the first few verses give you some interesting insights into worship. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise it's literally the word psalm. Psalm him, for this is fitting for those who are upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a ten-stringed instrument or a guitar, we could say. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Do you see how exuberant this praise is? It's as if God's word being received into your heart declaring after you've exposed yourself with confession of sin and he received that confession and gave you a new word to put into your heart that it started to well up joy downstairs we were sharing testimonies of what the church was like and how many people got all like choked up teary-eyed couldn't get the words out we just experienced that as a church community downstairs Minutes ago, people have joy in their heart about the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the power of God in a way where when they start thinking about all that's stirred up in here, it just comes out with emotions. Are some of you too cerebral that you don't realize that like the whole body is important, like your emotions are important? They reflect what you care about most, what you get angry about. What do you get nervous or anxious about? Your emotions shouldn't dictate how you live, but they should tell you what you're living for. They're like the dashboard on your car. You're driving down the road, and then the dashboard pops up, and it says, hey, you're almost out of gasoline. Hey, you're almost needing to get your oil changed. Hey, the car's overheating. Have you ever been doing that in life? You're driving down the road of life, and you realize, I'm starting to get a little hot. I'm starting to get really worked up. I'm going to just keep going. I'm going to keep going. No, you're supposed to stop. Pull over, open the hood, take it somewhere. This is what we call discipleship, counseling, church community. Helping one another when you start to realize, like, I'm getting all anxious about something. Well, what is this? Your body's just going to do it. The question is, why are they doing it? And are you going to even look under the hood or are you just going to keep on driving until you crash and burn? The Bible's telling us that when we receive the forgiveness of God's word in our heart, it should very naturally respond in our lives and hearts with joy. Expressive, celebrant, yes, joy. And so if you're not experiencing that, then this would be a good time to say, huh, my engine's a little too cold. I went through that whole church service, not just once, but twice, three times, week after week after week. Something's not right. I'm not working right. The psalmist declares to us that when we receive the word of God, we should praise. Many of you know exactly what that's like. 
but we find ourselves as a church community in very different circumstances where some of us, the praise flows out very naturally, and for others of us, you can't even remember the last time that was your experience, and maybe for even some of you, I've never felt that. So we need to gather together weekly for worship to receive God's word and to do so so that we can have joy, sustained, hope-filled, waiting on the Lord kind of joy. And on the basis of this psalm and some other things, especially in light of when our church got started, I've got five things I want to share with you about how a church should worship. First, substance is more important than styles of worship. I think this psalm is a great example of it. What is the basis for the joy? Well, either you can look backwards in Psalm 32 and say forgiveness of sins, but let's just say, I'm not convinced Psalm 32 and 33 are linked. Unconvincing, Pastor Phil. Okay, look at verse 4. What's the word that begins verse 4? Four. F-O-R. Four. Praise the Lord with joyful, celebrant, exuberant shouts of joy genuinely, authentically rising up in your heart and declare them in the congregation of the assembly. Why? Because God's word is revealing his character. God's word is revealing his power and God's word reveals his plans. Did you see that? For the word of the Lord is upright. The word of the Lord is not the Lord, but it reveals the character of the Lord. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And you could keep reading the rest of the psalm. Do you get the idea? You should shout with joy on the basis of the character of God revealed in the word of God. I suggest to then, substance is more important for changing your heart than styles, like music styles. Do you know that some churches decide that when they gather together that some people like fast music and some people like slow music. Some people like old music and some people like new music. Some people like lots of instruments and some people like a little bit of instruments. Some people don't want any instruments. Some people want there to be a lot of people on the stage. Somebody wants nobody on the stage. I heard one pastor one time say, I think we should just put a big curtain in front and then nobody can see anybody on the stage. There's all kinds of preferences people have about styles of music. You could maybe refer from these verses that we just read. Should we sing only new songs? Because it says a new song. Sing a new song. Oh, why did we sing a 1500 song written in the 1500s? 500 year old song written by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. That's too old, Pastor Phil. We need to sing new songs in this church. All right, well, we sang Speak, O Lord, before I got up here. That's new. That was written like 10, 15 years ago. That's not new enough. We need a song that was written today. Something really relevant and hip. Do you see how this is extremely distracting to the heart and the purpose of worship? Those things matter way, way less. Do they matter at all? Yes, they do. But they matter way, way less. Substance drives worship, not styles. Secondly, confession, both of your sin, but also confessing who the Lord is, confession is better than consumption. Too many people come to Embassy Church and they're coming as consumers. They're, they're ready to be in a, another contrast. This is second and third. 
They don't want to be participants in confession. They want to be spectators and consumers. So I ask you, why did you come today? Was it to participate or just sit back and kind of like, let me check this church out. Let me shop around. Let me see. Is this going to be a good sermon? I wonder if the songs are going to be good. I'm just going to kind of analyze everything. How often is that our actual attitude, if not the very words we say after the Sunday gatherings? If we've come for the substance of God and the worship of God, we should be participants who confess, not consumers who spectate. Thirdly, or fourthly, sorry, substance, style, confession, consumption, participants, spectators, a fourth contrast for you to think about how we should worship with the aim to conform rather than perform. If we have all these other things out of whack, we care more about styles and consuming and spectating, then we will often be those that want to have church revolve around us. And I want to express my truth rather than being conformed to God's word and his truth. And this pretty much sums up much of what's going on in our world today. Not just in the church, but outside the church in the way that the outside the church is bleeding into the church. We think that the most authoritative and authentic thing is what's right in here. The Bible tells you that the most authentic and authoritative thing is God's word outside of you that comes in. And this, my friends, sums up much of the difference between true religion, true Christianity, true Bible truth versus everything else. So lastly, fifthly, we come for edification, not entertainment. You see those substance versus style, confession versus consumption, participators instead of spectators, conforming to God's word instead of performing our truth, being edified rather than entertained. We shout for joy. We come and gather as a people in order to praise God on the basis of who he is and what he has done. So that's why we worship and it's how we worship. Before I move on to our final point on who we worship, I want to just give a very practical kind of summary of one author's take on the practice of confession of sin, since it's related to this psalm, Psalm 32 and Psalm 33, and help you connect the dots between how this practice in particular can change you and the how of actually confessing sins together publicly. Maybe not just your own personal sins, but like we say at this church, we do public prayers of confession. We're about to do one after this sermon's over. And you can participate or you can spectate. I would encourage you to participate for these reasons. James Smith wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And in there, he has this little section on the power of practicing prayers of confession. He says the practice of confession and the assurance of pardon that comes after that confession. This whole thing runs counter to the way the world practices self-help and health and practices of how to become a healthy human being. The world wants to nullify all talk of your guilt and responsibility. Ah, go see last week's sermon. It will point out our failures, but it will never give us forgiveness. 
On the one hand, this Oprah-fied self-help practice from the world fosters an illusion of self-confidence. This is why you hear so many people say, you just got to believe in yourself, which refuses to recognize the true reality of our failures, our guilt, and our transgressions. It castigates such things as, oh, that's negative energy. We don't want negative energy, and it'll compromise our self-esteem, so they say. This we-can-do-it confidence of these worldly practices of self-affirmation try to give people assurance, but does so without true confession of what's really going on. On the other hand, many of the world's practices of this consumer marketing world we live in play off of the deep knowledge you and I do have of our faults, our failures, and then abuses them in order to shame us into something, but not guilt. In response, the words of the world promise you not forgiveness or pardon, but new opportunities to correct your problems through good deeds, acts of service. And in this way, the world's words and message require us to confess, but will never give us pardon or peace. In contrast to all of this, the Christian practice of us confessing our sins and hearing God's assuring word of forgiveness in worship counters the world and all of its practices by immersing us in a weekly service that reminds us of this fundamental fracture that we have with inside of ourselves and outside in the world. It forces us to be honest with God about the way that we have been complicit in injustice, as well as to face up to the ways we have failed to be good husbands and wives, daughters or sisters, brothers, neighbors, ministers. Perhaps more importantly, we as a church have failed to be the foretaste of the kingdom and live as a faithful witness in the world. But thankfully, the practice of confession does not end in despair. It gives us hope. It assures us that God does forgive us. It reminds us that there is a curse that's being rolled back through the Holy Spirit. It reorders creation as God speaks into this broken creation through the person of Jesus Christ. We gather together as a people in order to practice the arrival of the kingdom in its fullness. And so we will be trained to be kingdom-minded people and faithful witnesses to the world. That's just a short little excerpt, I think, that would be helpful for you to realize that confessing one sin, last week's sermon, leads to a kind of conforming, transforming power to live faithfully in this world by the power of God's word. The word that we now lastly want to see became flesh. Who do we worship? Well, we worship God. But if we read Psalm 33, do you not realize how appropriate it is for us to consider that God's word is not God, but it, it is God. God's word as he speaks. So imagine a human speaking. The father speaks. And just like I said, you can't like grab the words. They're distinct from me when I say a sentence. That sentence is now out. And it can do good and build up your heart in faith. Or it can do damage. As we know all too well, some of the most painful memories of our life are attached to the condemning, belittling, shaming words of one of our closest family members or friends. The scars that I deal with every week from you all as a pastor is dealing with wounded words. Words 
have power to give life or destroy life. So God speaks in his word, distinct from him, but a part of him as it's a revealing of his character, like we saw in verses 4 and 5. As a revealing of his power, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So God made the world with his word, but he wasn't his word. Or then was he? You see, this is why the New Testament comes in and tells us that the spirit of God hovering over the deep in Genesis 1 verse 2, distinct from God, but God is the person of the Trinity, the spirit. And then it also tells us that the word or the Proverbs 8, go read Proverbs 8, Lady Wisdom, who was with God in the beginning creating everything, that word that when he commanded and it came to be is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Meaning that there was God who created, and then there was the word distinct from God, but was God. And then John chapter 1 verse 14 says, that word became human flesh and came among us. And then you can read Colossians chapter 1, and it tells us that he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And that by him and through him and for him and to him are all things because he created everything, Jesus The word of God was with God in the beginning, creating everything. And then you could go to Hebrews chapter 1, and it says, in many times, and in many different ways, God spoke in the Old Testament through prophets, but in these last days, God spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, through whom he is upholding all things by the power of his word. That was the fill in the blank. Word. Go read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's all over the place, is my point in the New Testament. The theology of Psalm 33 that reveals to us that there is a God who speaks. And that God's word creates life. That word sustains life. That that word is distinct from him, but it's actually equal with him. That word is none other than Jesus the Christ. So then I ask you, as the writer of Hebrews makes so emphatically clear, if Jesus Christ is his last and his final word to you and to me, if Jesus sums up all that God has said before, and he is the yes and the amen of every single word that happened prior to Jesus, what is God communicating to us in his word? that his character is upright and that his personhood is worthy of worship, that his word has power, that he looks at winds and waves in a boat as a storm is raging and he says, peace, and the storm ceases. He tells Lazarus as he is dead in the grave and the tomb for days and he stinketh, the old King James says. He was dead, dead. But with a word, he says, Lazarus, come forth. That word, the word that created all, is the word that controls and sustains the universe. That word can take a dead person and raise them to life. Look at Jesus Christ and see if it does not embody all of Psalm 33 and all that God is in the Old Testament. His character, his power, and his plans. His plans to frustrate the powers over the Roman Empire. 
Let me just read this last little excerpt to close out our message. Jesus is the embodiment of God's person, his power, but finally his plans. Didn't our psalm say this? The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing and frustrates the plans of his people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The sovereign God rules over all nations. And when they think they're scheming and then have gotten God, God in the person of Jesus Christ says, yeah, right. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. In fact, it's the same words. I think this is a link back to Psalm 2 telling you the Lord looks upon the nations and scoffs. Ha! You thought that was going to beat me? When we look at Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for sinners, we see the person of God. We see the power of God. We see Jesus saying with his words, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But most importantly, we see that the plan of God is being sovereignly fulfilled. Acts chapter 4 puts it this way. After a group of disciples were released from prison for sharing the gospel, they came back to their friends and reported all that had happened to them. And when everybody heard it, they were like, praise God. They had joy, exuberant joy bursted out because they saw the power of God in this story. It's kind of like being downstairs a few minutes ago. We heard testimonies of what God's done, and it brought people to tears and joy in their heart. In that same way, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of early Christians who heard a testimony of God's person and power and plans being unfolded right before their eyes. And they said this, in a prayer together, Sovereign Lord, you are the one who made the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And you're the one who spoke through David by the power of the Holy Spirit and said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And so when they had finished praying, the place which they were gathered was, was being shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In summary, if you weren't just tracking with why I read Acts chapter 4, Similar to Psalm 33, it says that the nations will rage against the king that God has chosen, the anointed one, the Christ. And they will try their best to stop God's plans, but they will not realize that the very thing that they're doing is fulfilling God's plans because God's sovereign plan will not be frustrated or thwarted. So he says, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Gentiles, peoples of nations, 
Whether you want to talk about random people in the street shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, that created the death of Jesus, or you want to talk about the political powers that were moving their chess pieces, trying to make sure that they're jockeying for positions of authority, however you want to tell the story of Christ's death, the story is this. Your hand and your plan did whatever you wanted to take place. That's the story of the Bible. God's character and person, his power is revealed in his plan, and the word of God that became flesh revealed all of it supremely, beautifully. Almost in a way where I would suggest that if you were to recite and remind and renew this story again and again, week after week, you might have new songs of fresh joy. The new song doesn't mean it needs to be a brand new song written today. It could be the same old song you've heard a thousand times, but you sing it this time, you got a new song in your heart. It takes on new meaning. I propose that when we come to worship, when we receive the forgiveness of sins, and we do so in a manner that's appropriate to worship God and not ourselves, and we center our church around Jesus Christ and his gospel, we will be conformed, transformed to his glory, we will receive joy, and not just flippant joy, I mean sustained hope where you can wait upon God's plans to be fulfilled. Let's pray together. O oh, sovereign Lord, you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And you are the one who brought all things to work in accordance to your plan and purposes, centered around the death of Jesus Christ. And so in his name, we now pray and we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us to joy-filled worship. I want to pray specifically for those that are with us today that do not know you, that they would better know who you are as they hear your word being read, taught, celebrated in the truths and the songs that we sing. And I pray that they would find joy as they would confess their sins, admit that we are all part of the problem and humble themselves before the person of Jesus who takes away our sins and declares to us, you are forgiven. I pray for the brothers and sisters who are here today and it was hard to get to church. I want to pray, Father, that you will help them Know and trust that they can wait upon the Lord like Psalm 33 says. And that when the joy is not here now, that they would remember it will come. Your word does not fail. And I pray that many of those conversations that need to happen would happen. We would pull our cars over. We would look under the hood and we would confess what's really going on. And we would be honest, going to church today was really hard. And I pray that through these processes, you would pour out your grace upon us. And I pray for the brothers and sisters who are here today, and this is just a great day of worship. Hearing your word brings joy to their heart. I pray that their hearts would also weep with those who are weeping, that they would be excited to share the good news of what they have in their hearts with others. So God, make us a people who are just like this Acts 4 community, and that even if we get thrown in prison, we would want to share your word with all the more boldness. 
and declare your gospel to the ends of the world. We pray that you would make this church a faithful witness. In Jesus' name, amen.